Well, there are uh, car problems, and then there are like car problems, right? Uh, there's the car problem that always has that silver lining. Like, I needed to replace my bumper anyway, you know? But then there are car problems like what happened this week on Highway 26. Did anybody see the giant plume of black smoke underneath the Bethany overpass? No? There was a car on fire. Like, legit, like fuego. The thing was just... It was up and going. And I felt it was one of those moments where you're driving by and you just got to look. You're like, no way. I felt like Tommy Boy. Like, that is awesome. Sorry about your car, man. You know, like that was how it felt. And, and there are always those kind of moments, right, where there are some things where you just go like, oh, it's, it'll be fine. Like, we'll just, we have a low deductible. And then there's that moment, right, where you're, your car's toast. Like, you're done. Right? And there are seasons in life where it feels like, oh, this is hard, but I can see how we'll get through. I can see how this will be okay. And then there are seasons in life that feel more like the car on fire. Like, I, I just feel toast. Like, we're done here. You know, like, this is, I don't see how there's any silver lining. And as a church, as uh, all of our congregations, all Colossae congregations are teaching through the book of Psalms this summer. And we're exploring the Psalms from the lens of giving voice to our souls. That, um, that in the Psalms, we have the, the full, unfiltered expression of what it means to live this human existence in a fallen world with a redeeming God. And we uh, are looking at uh, book three this week of the Psalms. It's divided, the Psalms are divided into five books, and... Uh, and we've just read through book three in our summer reading plan, which reads about 15 psalms a week, two a day, and then one on Sunday, uh, has just brought us through the end of book three. And you guys reading with us on that? It's been really, hopefully, life-giving to those of you who are. Um, maybe none of you are, and we should try that again. I don't know. Um, so uh, anyways, book three is Psalms 73 through 89. It's a short cluster of books, but they're all, or of, of poems, but they're all kind of bummers. You notice that? Like, anybody read through it this week and kind of like realize, hey, this is, this is kind of a voicing life as a bummer. Uh, well, it's because it is. Book three is really the low point of the Psalms, which is interesting. It's intriguing because it actually means that in God's economy, there's room for a low point. Right? It's not all up. Right? There's, there's down moments. And, and Psalms, the, sorry, book three of the Psalms began with Psalm 73, giving voice to our doubts, right? looking at the way in which we can experience spiritual vertigo when we see the world and the wicked prospering and hold that next to the claim that God's good to his people. And it's hard to make sense of that, and it throws us off and can throw us into doubt. And it ends with Psalm 89, with the people on the other side of the experience of their exile from their home, from their land, and they're saying, uh, where is your love, God? Where is that steadfast love promised to David? I don't see it because the nations are mocking you and they're mocking your anointed, your Messiah. And so, in other words, book three of the Psalms voices the trouble we have in this world, right? And it ends as a book unresolved. It just ends as a low point, speaking to the not yet of God's promises and his rule in our life. And it it gives voice to the unmet expectations that we have of a good God and what his promises would mean 
so we think, for our lives. So, as I said, though, it gives room for us to have a low point. I don't know if you've ever felt like you always have to be okay. I don't know, maybe that you grew up in a family where you always had to be up or okay, or maybe your experience of church is that it's not okay to be not okay. What book three of the Psalms is getting at, my friends, is that it's okay to not be okay and to give voice to it, that there's room in God's economy uh, for not doing okay and to voice it, okay? So that there is freedom, actually. And there are a lot of Psalms, in fact, that end, they, they work their way through trouble. God, I'm in trouble. God, everybody's out to get me. God, my bones are wasting away, yet I will believe your promises, right? They end with this, like, praise, but you're, you vindicate me, you know? Well, there's two Psalms in the entire Psalter out of 150 that just don't end positive, Psalm 39 basically ends with, God, turn your face away from me. Just leave me alone. And Psalm 88, our psalm for today, which just ends with a bummer. Okay? So aren't you so glad you came to church this morning? In the middle of your bright summer, we're going to just talk about darkness. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, let's read through Psalm 88 together. It's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And it is written... By Haman the Ezraite. O Yahweh, he says, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. That is the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. That's what I feel like. Like those whom you remember no more. I feel forgotten by you, for they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions uh, dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have crushed my companions. I'm sorry, you haven't crushed them. You've caused them, excuse me, to shun me. My companions shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes, they grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Yahweh. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Yahweh, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused me, I'm sorry, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. In other words, Uh, That last line ends with, my best friend is darkness. That's how he ends his prayer. All I have to keep me company 
My best, closest companion is darkness. Amen, Lord. Close my journal. What's on my list of things to do today? <laughs> like That's how he closes his prayer. What kind of psalm ends with my best friend is darkness? Right? It's amazing. What happens in Psalm 88 is we actually have a living witness to seasons or times of darkness in our life. That within uh, the scope of what God reveals to us, he includes someone's words and cries of pain and darkness and desperation, right, as this witness to seasons where we are disoriented and it feels like God is not there. And so what I want to say to you is that there are times in the Christian life where the color goes out, we go to black and white, and uh, in fact, this psalm uses the word darkness three times, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 12. Um, it is the last word in the psalm. My closest friend is darkness. So what I want to show you this morning is how this psalm gives voice to our darkness and how, uh, how it informs us on how to live through that, okay? Four things this morning. The first thing is this, that times of darkness can last a really long time no matter what we do. Times of darkness can last in spite of our actions. Because what we have in the psalm is a guy who's praying all the way through. He's believing. He's starting from the standpoint of, God, you are my savior, right? He's saying, God, I believe you. I trust you. I I trust that you are my salvation, not me, not my works, nothing that I do and that I bring. You're my savior. Good theology, good faith. As far as we can tell, he's living obediently. We don't know. But we know that he's experiencing darkness. So what's the point of that? It's that you can do all the right things. And yet, you can still experience external and internal darkness. External darkness is when the, the things around you are crumbling. Right? There's all kinds of things we can lean on and, and put our weight into. Your job, your home, your a relationship, your friends. And... And, and those things can all crumble, and that feels like external darkness. They're all external to yourself. Right? We, we love to look to other things for comfort, but the reality is some of the, sometimes and most of the time, all of those things will disappoint us sooner or later. But internal darkness, is that's our own heart that the this, this psalmist is expressing. He's saying, I don't feel like you're there, God. I feel like actually you're mad at me. You've left me. And all you've given me is pain my whole life. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, I I don't feel like you're there. In fact, I would say to you, we can all kind of handle a certain amount of external darkness. Your TV can break and you're fine. Your car can break the next day and you'll be fine. Your dog can die, right? You can lose your job. Like you can handle all of that as long as you feel like God loves me. He's with me right? His love is poured out into my heart, and I know he's with me, and I have the joy of the Lord, right? It's all good. (laughs) Well, when that's missing, that's pretty terrible, and that's what he's describing. So what I want to get out right away is that you can be faithful and feel God's absence, which is important for us. We have to be prepared for this as Christ followers, especially in an American society where we are very self-centered and cause and effect oriented. And so if I feel like something's wrong, my first place to look is for blame. And the psalmist is saying, I have nobody to blame except for God. You're missing, right? So it's not my fault. 
It's your fault. And we'll come to that in just a minute. And so we have to embrace the tough message that seasons of darkness can and will come, right? Where we don't necessarily feel the intimacy of God in our lives. And it doesn't mean, first and foremost, that something's wrong with what you're doing, okay? Um, And our initial reaction may very well be, well, can't we just kind of hold on to the truth that God works all things for good, right? For the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8. Well, yeah, of course, that's absolutely fundamentally true, right? The first book of the Bible closes with that, that description from Joseph to his brothers, what you meant for me, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. God is the God who works good, but there's no promise that we'll see the good and perceive what that good is on this side of eternity, just that God is doing it. Sometimes you see it a week or a year later, but other times we just don't necessarily see and perceive that. And so you can have all your ducks in a row and still have internal darkness. It's always good when those seasons happen in your life to run through your checklist and examine your diet and sleep and friendships and vocation and moral inventory and spiritual influences and maybe mental health. Those are good things to examine. But the reality is you can have all of those things in working order and still feel a sense of darkness. And so I think we have to have a readiness as a community to understand that as followers of Jesus, not all things are always rosy, right? That um, ultimately, if we say you can't talk about darkness, if that's somehow your fault, it's actually going to shut down the conversation. We're not going to actually be able to relate through seasons of darkness. We'll just exclude people in seasons of darkness. Do you, do you see how that works? Job's friends in the book of Job were great friends for the first, uh, first bit. Right? They invested in just sitting with Job in his pain. But then they started trying to solve it. Right? And they started prescribing some actions. You've clearly screwed up, Job. Right? So now do these things. What, is, what does that do to us? That pushes us away rather than draws us in. All right, so is that it? Good, good message for you this morning. You can have a season of darkness and last a long time no matter what you do. Let's close in prayer, right? Um, no, that's not the only message. Remember that this psalm is set in the context. It's set in the context of the psalms that begin with the claim that the person who meditates on God's word, his Torah, his instruction, is blessed. That the person who rejects the way and the counsel of the wicked doesn't walk in it, right? And who takes refuge in the, the Messiah, that's the blessed person. That God is blessing whoever takes refuge in the Messiah and focuses their life through the lens of his instruction. Now, this is a prolonged exercise of prayer, which brings us to the second point. That there... The seasons of darkness can actually be an occasion to see the brightness of God's grace. It's in seasons of darkness that we can actually see the brightness of God's grace. So often, I think we become convinced that our Christian life is fundamentally what we do for God. Right? And when those things don't seem to have a payout, we retreat. And we are tempted to think that something's maybe broken with us, 
Right? And seasons of darkness that we actually learn to see that the Christian life is fundamentally about who God is with us, what he has done for us, and not what I do for him. And what, what's fascinating to me about this psalm is all the way through, Haman is talking to God. Um, it's one of the most important things we can do when seasons of darkness hit us, right? Because the temptation is to run from him. But Haman sends this beautiful example by running to him. He keeps talking all the way through his pain. Uh, one of my favorite things that St. Augustine says is that our hearts are restless until they learn to rest in you, right? Oh, God. And Haman is trying to find rest in God. And he's struggling and he's wrestling for rest and he's not finding it, but he doesn't give up on it. Even though he, you know, he keeps going to the well expecting water and it keeps coming up like a bucket of dust. But he keeps going over and over and over. And read through what his language. It's sarcastic almost. Um, look at verse 12 with me. Or verse 11. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in abaddon that decay? Are, are your wonders known in the darkness? Right? Um, Verse 13, I, O Lord, I, you know, I cry to you in the morning, in my morning prayer, it comes before you. Right? But you're, you're casting my soul away. Why? What he's saying is, I want to praise you, but you're killing me. Right? You're absolutely killing me. I want to praise you. Right? So if you're killing me, how, how are you going to get praise from me? I think what he's doing in this very sarcastic way is he's actually cross-examining God. He's coming at him as like a prosecutor. And he's saying, I, I, I've got a case against um, in fact, uh, I would say to you that his entire cross-examination of God, he, he just unloads both barrels and he gets no answer from God, no answer at all. You might even say that he's speaking blasphemously to God. At least he's not respectful or he's, he's not reverent, right? He's pushing back hard and he's saying in the most exaggerated way, ever since I was a kid, you've been against me. You've done nothing for me. You've never been there for me. Right? That's what he's saying. And but this is a freebie for you. Just quick side. Has nothing to do with the sermon. Just a freebie. Um, the language of like never. You've never been there for me. You've failed me. Can we just own the fact that this is not a way to fight fair by throwing out always and never just in our own conversations with one another or in your marriage? I'm just saying. Just throw that language out the window because this is never true, right? Like nobody always and nobody never. Like that's just, that's just not a thing, right? It, it just creates a whole new argument. So just avoid that as much as possible. All right, back to the sermon. Darkness. Okay, here we go. Um, he's not fighting fair here, is he? He's not fighting nice. At best, he's ungrateful. At worst, he's actually just spiteful in his relationship with God. You've never done anything good for me. Um, which is interesting. So Psalm 39, the other psalm that's like this one, it just says, God, just would you turn away from me? Would you just not look at me anymore? Um, leave me alone so I can you know, have some peace before I die. All right, okay. Psalm 88, he says, darkness is my closest friend. Uh, what do you think he's saying? I think he's saying, God, um, the pitch darkness is of more comfort to me than you are. Right? Darkness is a better friend than you. Like my only comfort is that at night I can close my eyes and go to sleep. Like that's all I got for comfort. What's uh, interesting, Derek Kidner, really um, a prominent Psalms commentator, he says this. He says, 
the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men and women speak when they are desperate. I think this is helpful for us. This is where we see the brightness of God's grace in contrast to what Haman is saying. What Haman is saying isn't true. It's not even reverent. But it's what he feels. And he brings it in faith before the God who he says is his Savior. And what's fascinating to me is God doesn't censor it. Not for a second. God doesn't cut it out. He doesn't say, you know, I was cool with you until you talked to me like that. I'm not going to include this prayer anymore in my book. And I won't be your God anymore. That's not what he says. What's fascinating to me is instead of saying, I don't want to be identified with you, he actually keeps his prayer in his book. This grumbling word from man has now become God's word to us. Isn't that fascinating? There's grace in that. That, that. What the scriptures are saying is God actually identifies with us in our darkness. And he's saying, I'm still the God of the person who talks to me this way. Because they're still talking to me, right? And I'm their God. And so that's the reason Derek Kidner can say the very presence of these prayers, the, f- the fact that God keeps them in there is a testimony that he understands And so he knows how we talk when we get like this, when we get despondent, when we get really down. We're not accurate. Have you ever noticed that? When people are desperate, they're not accurate, which I'm a total, like, geek, and I'm over-analytical, and I have to repent of all the times I've tried to correct when somebody just needed me to absorb. You with me on that? Where if we're going to allow this psalm to shape us as a community, we have to be able to learn to be comfortable with absorbing people's inaccuracy. Not because we don't want to get to truth. We want to get to truth. We believe the truth sets us free. Right? And, and the truth is always found in Christ and what he reveals. But what I want to say is that there's process for that. There's times to absorb when people are desperate. And if we go to correct too quickly, we shut off the conversation. And I can only tell you this from having shut off plenty of conversations. And so so we repent of that. And we say, no, as a community, we're going to learn the difference between somebody speaking in desperation out of darkness and somebody working out their systematic theology. There's a difference. And so we relate to one another in in following this psalm. I want to show you the third thing that happens in this psalm that's absolutely, I think, critical, or the third thing that this psalm shows us. Um, And that's this, that on one hand, we see God's grace, that he chooses to be the God of the people who still speak to him out of our inaccuracy and desperation. And he says, I I can absorb that because I love you and I'm your God. And my goal isn't for you to be completely correct right away. My goal is for you to become like me. So the third thing, though, is that darkness gives the occasion for us to become more like him, to become someone of enduring greatness. It kind of sounds cheesy. You can become someone of enduring greatness. It sounds like a cat poster, right? Um, That's a total Lego movie quote. Um, Maybe the first time that's ever been quoted in a sermon. But um, anyway, we... 
we can become like God in seasons of darkness. And here's, here's what I would say to you. When there's times in your life where you're serving and you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it. There's times in your life where you read your Bible and you feel like, this is of no comfort to me. There's times when you pray and you feel like, God, it just doesn't feel like you're even listening. There's times when you give generously and you feel like, God, you, you're continuing to like, you're, like you're sucking me dry. I, I don't feel like you're giving anything to me. My heart feels distant from you, even though I'm going through the right actions. And the temptation at this point is to then give up, right? To go, ah, I, I'm not getting anything out of God's word, so I'm going to put it down. I'm not giving, getting anything out of prayer, so I'm going to quit going to prayer and spending that time. I could do something else with that time. I'm going to quit serving because it doesn't feel like it serves me. And that's the temptation. And I would say to you that when we give in to that temptation, what we're doing is we're giving in to the strategy of Satan, that we're playing right in his hand. Because here's, here's his philosophy in life. Look at Job chapter 1. This is Satan's philosophy of life. He says, uh, Satan, the accuser, the adv- adversary, not advocate. Jesus is the advocate. Sorry. Um, the adversary, right? The accuser. What does he do? He comes before Yahweh, one true God, and he comes and he says, does Job fear God for no reason? All right. Is he really following you for nothing? That's what he's getting at, right? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, he says, Job is not serving you because he's loyal to you. You've bought his loyalty. He serves you because you hook him up. That's why, right? So the way Satan thinks is humans are selfish. He's right, right? But he's only half right, right? He says, the only reason anybody worships you is because you do favors for them. They're selfish people. The humans aren't really imaging you. They're not truly human. They're mercenary. That's his, that's his underlying assumption. So he says, take all the stuff away, and I guarantee you, he'll curse you. Well, God says, game on. I'll take that bet. I don't, I don't like that God feels like Han Solo in that moment of scripture, but he does. He gambles and he wins. And what's fascinating to me is um, Job actually overcomes. He overcomes the satanic strategy of serve yourself uh, and only serve God as long as it serves you, right? Um, he doesn't play into Satan's hand. And I would argue, right, that what we see in Job is he wrestles with God, he wrestles with God's justice, and he sees in the end that God is incredibly wise, far more wise than he can perceive himself, right? And in the end, God writes kind of the wrongs in his life, and it's, it comes out on the other side pretty victorious. And the psalmist, I would say, in his own way, is doing the same thing. Of course he's complaining, of course he's pushing back, he's yelling at God, but he's yelling at God. Right? He keeps going to the well, even though he feels like it's dry. He keeps processing all of his feelings before God. It's still prayer. It's still running to instead of running away. In other words, he's staying even though he's not getting the hookup. He's not 
getting the benefits. And there's times in our lives where we're not getting the benefits. But I would suggest to you that those are the times that actually forge us into someone who is God-like rather than Satan-like, right? Those are the times where we become great in God's way of greatness, which is faithful and steadfast. See, it's only in seasons of darkness that we can grow steadfastness. It's only in seasons of darkness where we don't feel like we're getting the reward for our actions, which is totally backwards to begin with, right? God rewards us without any of our own performance to begin with, right? That's his grace. He makes us alive in Christ by the Spirit and says, you didn't do anything to deserve it. And so what I'm doing is I'm making you alive and bringing you into a living relationship with me. That is the reward for my effort, not yours. But anyways, we get it in these places where we think about it in reverse and we think, I'm not getting any reward. And so I'm going to just kind of give up and let kind of just live an agnostic life. Right? And go to church maybe, but functionally I'm living as if, I don't know if God's even there. And so when you have seasons of darkness and you serve God through it and you actually continue to go to him, even though you're not getting necessarily what you want out of it, what you're doing is you're actually overcoming Satan. You're actually overcoming his way and you're living into God's way, which is steadfast. He's steadfast in his love towards you, even though you don't reward him. Right? There's right. I mean, while we were still enemies, he loved us. Where was the hookup for him? Right? There wasn't one. He just, he absorbed the price. And so when you have steadfastness, you won't be movable like things, by things like convenience, right? Um, where I'm easily moved by convenience, and therefore, I, if, if it doesn't feel convenient to me, I won't serve, right? Well, if you have steadfastness, you won't be moved by convenience. Or maybe you can be moved without steadfastness by annoyance, right? Where you won't be in community past the annoyance of people, which means you're done after the first small group gathering, right? Or maybe you're moved by preference, so you won't obey because you don't feel like it. But I'm telling you, when those seasons of darkness happen, we have an opportunity to remain steadfast in trust and obedience, And it forms us into people who are immovable by those other things that move us so quickly. You you with me? So here's the last thing that we need to see this morning. And that's this. And this is so critical. He says, darkness is my only friend. Well, it seemed that way. But what we see in the, the full witness of the whole scriptures is that it's not entirely true. In fact, Um, darkness, though it feels permanent and it feels final, it's always relative. It's ultimately never permanent. And here's why. The psalmist felt darkness, right? He felt it fully. He felt like God's wrath was on him. And he says, you know, the psalmist says in 39, Psalm 39, turn your face away from me. The psalmist says in Psalm 88, uh, darkness is my closest friend. Does this sound like anyone else you know? It does, doesn't it? It sounds like what we see happen to Jesus. As darkness is about to come down on him in the garden as he sweats blood, right? because he knows what he's about to experience is the real wrath that the, he and the Father share against sin. What, what is about to come is real abandonment because he'll become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so he'll lose intimacy with the Father. And so what we see in Matthew 27 is this description of Christ on the cross where now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. Now Jesus is experiencing a cosmic darkness. What was only apparent to Haman is real for Jesus in a way that no one else will experience. And so about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, making it his words to God. And so it's there that he gives up his last breath. And it says that, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into, right? The roadblock between fellowship with humanity and God is now shredded from top to bottom, and the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were also open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, dead, were raised. Okay. You see, what I want to say to you this morning, and this is, this is where there's always a surprise ending with our darkness when we look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ. But what Jesus has done is he's taken our darkness. The reality is that we are just as Satan describes to God. Yeah, we are mercenary. That's how we start off with God. We come to him with a problem we want him to fix for us. What happens, though, because of what Jesus has done, he says, I'll take all of that self-centeredness, all of that creation-exploiting, others-damaging, God-rebelling selfishness, and I'll take the debt of that on myself. I'll take and bear the wrath that's just against that, myself. I'll take the darkness that all of that incurs, myself. And I'll do it in your place. And I'll do it so that you will never be abandoned. I'll take the abandonment so that you can have my companionship. That's what is happening at the cross. And so when we look at our own darkness... And we see it through the lens of what Jesus has done finally and fully for us. We can see hope. And we can say, even though it feels like darkness, even though it feels like abandonment, it's not. He's shown me that even though darkness was coming down on him in the garden, he chose not to abandon me. And because of that, I can know that he doesn't abandon me now. Are you with me? See, the gospel does change our darkness. It relativizes it. And it brings us in contact with the hope that as long as the resurrection is true of Jesus, it will be true of all who are found in Christ by faith. And if resurrection's coming, then you cannot say darkness is final in your life. That there is a light dawning because of resurrection. So we're going to go to the table this morning. We're going to go to the table to celebrate the fact that God has offered union with himself to us through his son. I don't know where you're at with God today. Maybe you are in a season of darkness or maybe you've come through one. Maybe someone around you is in one. I would invite us this morning to take up Christ's invitation to find hope and meaning and joy, and what he's freely offered. And that we see the way forward as a community, that it is always marked by self-giving love. It is marked by what Jesus has done. So we go to the table in hope because he has conquered death.
And the end of the story is a story of light, the light of God's own presence dwelling with humanity for eternity. Darkness is never permanent because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter and Counselor sent from the Father and the Son into our lives to bear witness to the reality of Christ. We thank you for your word that says of Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it because you are crucified in our darkness and risen over it. We come to the table to be nourished again by the reality of your body given for us and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We come to the table to be reminded that your goal is fellowship with us, that we're welcome at the table, not strangers, but sons and daughters, and one family in the Spirit through Christ. We thank you. Amen.